Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Nympho's Shame Pit. I am your host, Megan Monet. On today's episode, I will divulge into the world of sex work and the history of sex for sale. But first, I think you all deserve to know what was the final straw for me to give up conventional dating altogether. So I've never really been the relationship type. I'm more of the casual hookup type, and that wasn't always my intentions. I've tried to have flings before with people, but it just ends up boring me, and I usually flee to live in another country as a way to avoid the end of a situationship. Yep, that's happened like three times now. But the final straw for me was this guy I was hooking up with when I first moved to Vancouver. Let's call him Pumpkin Patch Boy. If you're up to date with a certain Netflix CW show, then you would have actually seen his face. <laughs> anyway, uh, let me give it to him. He made an effort. We went on a couple of cute dates to a pumpkin patch and then for a couple of drinks in this cool comic book themed bar, which I found really charming. I was new to the city and I was excited to explore it, but we split the bill and head back to his place, which smelt like boy and dirty socks. We had pretty straight people sex, meaning I was a pillow princess and he thrusted a couple of times, grunted, finished, and flinged the condom across the room, just missing the bin. Splat, right on the floor. Ew. Then he passed out and I had to make my own way home from the other side of the city. It was cold, I was lost, broke, phone on 5% and feeling pretty fucking cheap. So I signed up for s that night and went on some proper fucking dates. This way I saw an epic side to Vancouver. My first ever sugar daddy was this guy who lived in another province but came to Vancouver for work pretty regularly. Let's call him Butterfly. We planned to meet when he arrived in Vancouver. A week later, we're sitting next to one another in a dimly lit restaurant in Yaletown, which is this sexy restaurant district of the city. I can't begin to explain how nervous I was, but I was also pretty excited because I'd never been on a date to this type of restaurant before. It was like tablecloth fancy, like multiple forks and knives type fancy. Apparently it was his first time meeting up with someone from the website too. I'm like, oh, well, this isn't my first time, even though it totally was. So I'll show you the ropes. Don't be nervous, babe. All while my foot is like tapping on the floor like crazy while my stomach is entering fight or flight mode. We finished dinner and head back to his hotel room. I'm feeling pretty tipsy and actually pretty excited to get down to business. I'm not sure how much detail I want to go into about what happened over the next hour or two, but I can tell ya that I rocked his world. I had so much fun. I was having sex with him like I have never had sex before. My inhibitions were gone. My confidence was high. I felt fucking sexy without even trying that hard. And I think it was because he made me feel so worthy, like I was the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. Whereas in the past, the men I've slept with, they've kind of left me feeling a little cheap and used, especially with the ghosting and the shit talking behind my back, which eventually always gets back to us, guys. So it's like, what is the game plan with doing that? Like, for example, the first time I ever had sex, the day after, I remember seeing a photo on someone's snap story of the guy I slept with and he had his fingers in a glass bottle and the caption said, in quotations, she was this tight. Like, <laughs> mortifying. Also, I was probably so fucking tired because you didn't make me feel comfortable and safe, you piece of shit. Anyway, back to Butterfly. 
I sleep over at the hotel with him and we get up the next day for breakfast. We're getting on so well at this point. He takes me shopping to Gucci and buys me this purse with a big gold butterfly on it and I actually still use it to this day. He pays for it in the back room and he comes out and hands me the little green bag. We leave the store, he kisses me on the cheek and he says, open it. I do. Inside the purse is a fucking wad of cash. And I'm hooked. I find this world so fascinating. And I guess I'm a part of it as a sugar baby, so I'm pretty damn qualified to discuss the topics. There were so many aspects to this industry, from dominatrix to escorting, pornography, OnlyFans, cam girls, stripping and erotic dancing, and of course, street prostitution, which I'm sure is what most people connote with sex work. I just know most people picture a Grand Theft Auto character whose drug dependency has led them to a life of risk, working on the street corners, wearing nothing more than a little mini skirt, a tank top and high heels, shivering as they wink at these gross, lonely men hoping to get some quick cash for the next hit of candy. There's a long history of sex for sale that has caused some powerful stigmas of the profession. I just find it ironic that it's one of the only professions women will always make more than men, and yet women who take part in such profession are ostracized for that choice. Let me repeat that, choice. Sex work only refers to the consensual and voluntary transactions between two of-age adult parties. There can't be any methods of coercion. If there is, that's assault or sex trafficking. I just want to make that clear. Going back to my point about it being a profession that women will always make more money than men, sex work can't exist without two parties involved, which more often than not is between a man and a woman. So why is it that women are criticized for the sale of sex? but men are not so much for the purchase of it. Hmm. Well, the answer to that is pretty damn obvious. Sexism. I picked up this book recently. It's called Harlots, Whores and Hackabouts and is written by Kate Lister. It documents the entire known history of sex for sale. It's a pretty fucking epic read, detailing the evolution of sex throughout history beginning an ancient world of Mesopotamia, which is the ancient region of Western Asia. These days it's known as Iraq. Sex work is considered one of the oldest professions there is. The first pages reference the Code of Hammurabi of 1754 BCE. If you're unfamiliar with what that is, which is what I was when I first came across it, after a quick Google search, it's defined as the oldest known code of laws in civilization. There were only 282 rules written, which established standards for commercial and social interactions. It sets fines for each law broken and punishments to meet the requirements of justice. In the code, it outlines a number of laws for the regulation and protection of sex workers. The book references plaques, ornaments, paintings, and other forms of storytelling methods that reveals the long history of sex work. This one clay plaque was discovered by a Victorian archeologist and it depicts two people. From what I can tell, it's a man and a woman, but they're in doggy doing the deed while drinking wine and beer. And it dates back to the second millennium BCE. The archeologists who discovered the plaque were recorded to be shocked at the frank depictions of sex they found when excavating ancient Mesopotamia. Ugh, imagine being so square, like dude. 
How the fuck do you think you're alive right now if people back in the day weren't boning all day and night? Imagine what they would think these days with porn on the internet. The whole concept of modern conservative religion is when sex started being considered sinful. It wasn't always that way. I want to talk about one of my favorite historical women of ancient Greek. Her name is Phryne. That's spelled P-H-R-Y-N-E. Pronounced Phryne. And she modeled for the first life-size depiction of the naked female form in Greek history and the marble sculpture of Aphrodite. Oh, you know, the Greek goddess of love and beauty. Phryne is the ultimate muse. I mean, how iconic is that? Actually, it gets more iconic. Not only was she ridiculously hot, but she was a bit of a boss bitch businesswoman who knew her worth. Some guy was trying to hook up with Phryne and she's like, okay, but I want something in return. And he's like, mm, what do you want? She doesn't even hesitate and says, I want a mansion. And he's like, whoa, girl, that's a lot. Didn't you just fuck a guy yesterday for like 40 gold coins? And she goes, well, then you two can wait around until I want a good fuck. Then I'll accept only so much. Ah, <laughs> iconic. The poet Mashon, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, but Mashon wrote the anecdote. So you can look it up for yourself if you want to read the proper tea on that, but that's pretty much how it went. She made a shitload of money. She was like stupidly rich and even offered to restore the walls of Thebes that Alexander the Great destroyed, but only if it was inscribed with this quote. Alexander destroyed this, but Phryne the courtesan restored it. The city refused. <laughs> Some people just don't have good taste. There's another story that ended up not being true, but it's a good one, so I want to share it. It's also a really good example of how the history books have really been representing Phryne. She was up against the death penalty for getting her yiddies out in public, and just as the judge is about to slam his gavel and sentence Phryne to death, this really well-received speaker, pretty much like a lawyer of ancient times, pulls out an epic trump card and disrobes Phryne. Everyone in the courthouse has a good look at her tatas and we're like, nope, fuck this, we can't kill her. There's a whole ass renaissance painting about it if you want to have a good look at the scene. So sex work was entirely legal throughout most of the ancient Greek and was taxed and regulated and provided a pretty damn good source of income for the state. Moving on to medieval times, this is where stigmas were really born in regards to sex work as a way of zoning and controlling the trade. At this point during the 13th century, authorities had been trying for like thousands of years to abolish it entirely. So sex work wasn't illegal at this point, but it wasn't praised like it once was. It was tolerated and only if the harlots followed the rules. The zones in the city where it was allowed were given names to discourage potential clients. I'm talking street names like Piss Alley and Foul Lane. And oh my gosh, there's one that's called Grope Cunt Street. Like, ew. As a way of controlling those who sold sex, laws were passed to prohibit harlots from dressing like dames and damsels, even if their pockets were as full as the nobles. This was obviously a tactic to stigmatize and shame sex workers. Punishments for not complying with the rules were public humiliation, hair being totally shaved off, and even banishment from cities. Lawmakers of the medieval London times, babes, just because you gotta pay to get a good route doesn't mean you gotta lash out like this. Jealous little bitches. Time passes and we enter the Renaissance period in Europe. Sex work is still being licensed, taxed, and allowed only in regulated zones. Sex workers were also expected to follow strict 
laws of costume. Italian authorities actually viewed prostitution as a necessary buffet against far worse sexual sin, like adultery and sodomy. It was viewed as, you know, like the lesser evil. They even shaped public policy so that prostitution would curb the quote of sin of homosexuality, end quote. Like, where is the reasoning behind that? If two men want to fuck each other, they're going to find a way. A woman's pretty little yiddies ain't going to magically change that. You can tell this was written by a very straight man. In the 15th century, women would go on tours around Europe, which established international celebrity status. Men weren't allowed to run brothels at this point, and older women were employed to manage businesses. Women in the trade during this time were successful entrepreneurs and were able to earn their own money, which is pretty damn dumbfounding considering the oppression women have faced throughout history. There was a strong hierarchy of courtesans established during this time. This is in Italy, and it was ranging from the lowest, known in Italian as the Cortigiani di Candela, which translates to the courtesans of the candle, and they were like the stereotypical streetwalker. Then there was the Cortigiani Domenicali, the Sunday courtesans who only worked occasionally, followed by the top-tier Cortigiani Oneste, the honest courtesans who were highly educated, cultured, and funded by the wealthiest and most powerful patrons of society. The first celebrated courtesan of this time was Imperia la Divina, translating to Imperia the Divine. She was also known as the Queen of the Courtesans. The most famous courtesan followed in Imperia's footsteps and was known to be intensely erotic and unapologetic at being a courtesan. Her name was Veronica Franco. Do we love my attempt at the Italian accent, by the way? I've just finished watching Baby on Netflix and goddamn, the Italian language is so hard. I actually used to take Italian lessons, but I for sure have ADHD and there was no way I was going to be able to learn that language. Maybe I'll tackle it later in life. Anyway, moving on to the 18th century Regency era, I want to introduce you to the term Molly House. It was kind of like a brothel for gay men to socialize and have sex. Some were sold, but a lot of the times it wasn't. Upon researching Molly Houses, it seems to just be a safe haven for homosexual men, which is kind of nice to think about. But it didn't take long for the authorities to catch wind of these establishments, and by 1726, Mr. Mug, who ran one of the most infamous molly houses in Piccadilly, London, was arrested. He wasn't the only one. There were so many men arrested and sentenced to death for operating such establishments. I mean, that is so fucked up. Just let these boys have their fun! Gosh. Towards the end of the 19th century, there was a boom in population in the UK, especially major cities like London. This meant fast-expanding lower class. Poverty was rampant. And a direct quote from the book Harlots, Whores and Hackabouts, where there is poverty, there is prostitution. It became known as the great social evil and the criticism of women who sold sex evolved from the lustful sinner to the pitiful victim. Authorities expressed concern and opened a number of organizations to assist with eradicating the problem. And then the whole topic of public health came into question rather than public morality. Oh, but of course, not the health of the women selling sex, but the men who were paying for it. The boom in population meant sexual disease spread like wildfire. Of course, the sex workers were blamed for this. Brothels were now expected to uphold strict data of their employees with regular health checks and inspections. There is no evidence that a record of the clients was kept, though. Hmm. Interesting. Still in the 20th century, but let's take a look 
at Paris and the Moulin Rouge, which first opened in 1889. The extravagant establishment was a venue that allowed the filthy rich to rub shoulders with the poorer bohemian artists of Paris. The dancers weren't classified as prostitutes, but it was no secret that many of the dancers offered a little extra on the side to paying clients. Mid-20th century was met with the devastation of World War I and World War II but the women who sold sex pounced on this new opportunity. London was swarming with young British, American, Canadian, and Australian men who had just left their families on the other side of the world and were pretty fucking horny. Okay, scared shitless, true. Like, if I knew I was going into battle tomorrow, you better believe I'm going to find myself a good fuck tonight. The German military ended up developing segregated class establishments for the soldiers and civilians for the purchase of sex. Blue lamp brothels were for officers and red lamp brothels for everyone else. There came a point when the American troops were dropping like flies due to STIs. So instead of following suit to protect their soldiers and the sex workers like the Germans did by enforcing education classes about sexual health and promoting the use of condoms, the American authorities campaigned to stigmatize and suppress the sale of sex with the intentions of creating total abstinence among soldiers. American authorities refused to issue condoms among their military for fear of simply encouraging sex. If troops were found to have recently had sex or showing signs of venereal diseases, they were humiliated by uncomfortable and thorough strip searches in front of everyone, which was obviously another form of discouragement from sex. Anyway, ew, so gross. Moving on. We are now entering the late 20th century and sex workers are fed up by their treatment at this point. The stigmatizing and regulation didn't improve after the war. Instead, women were fined for prostitution, which in turn led them to doing it more to pay the fine, putting them in risk of getting more fines. Don't even get me started on the violence against sex workers. There were multiple brutal and gruesome murders of sex workers between 1971 and 1974 in Lyon. The murderer was never caught. And want to know why? because the police didn't investigate it at all. So, protests for the rights of sex workers followed. The sex workers of Lyon locked themselves in a church to make their voices heard. They were visited by feminist groups and gay rights activists who kept them fed, hydrated and supported. Nothing was done by the authorities about this, except the protesters ended up being forcibly removed by the police. Even to this day, the 2nd of June, which is next week, is known as International Whores Day because of this event. Let's not forget about the Stonewall protests in 1969. How iconic that it was that year. Anyway, it was known to be one of the most monumental six-day protests fighting for the rights of the LGBTQ community. The Stonewall Inn was a popular late-night hangout for people of the queer community. Unfortunately, it was also a popular place for police to try and prove they have big dicks. June 28th, 1969, police descended onto Stonewall expecting another successful raid to add to their books. Instead, they were faced with the strength and frustration from the patrons, who happened to be women and sex workers. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who were trans women of colour, were said to have been the first people to fight back. Six days preceded of strikes, raids, protesting and clashes between the police and people of the queer community. 1995 rolls around and the Australian state, New South Wales, decriminalised sex work, followed by 2003 when New Zealand also did the same. Sex workers were said to have felt empowered by this. I mean, obviously, 
Having rights is pretty fucking empowering. Did you know acting was once regarded to be on the same level as harloting? I was watching The Picture of Dorian Gray the other day. It's this movie based on the novel by the same name. It's set in 1886 and follows the tale of this fucking stunning guy who is portrayed by Ben Barnes, you know, the handsome prince from Narnia. So Barnes is Dorian Gray and he barters his soul into this oil painting of himself and in return, he's able to stay beautiful forever. But with all this newfound freedom and power, he ends up being a bit of an asshole and doing a lot of morally questionable stuff. He develops this gross fuckboy personality that reflects his rotting soul. It's a fucking good watch, I'd recommend it. Anyway, he falls in love at the start of the movie with this actress, but all his high-class friends are like, ew, no, dude, you cannot marry an actor, she's pretty much a hooker. And I was like, what? As if they think that, they legit all just paid to go see her show and she has heaps of money and is pretty fucking successful. She's a catch, if you ask me. So I did some research and this is what I discovered. I was shocked. Acting has a long history alongside sex work. Back in Athenian Greek theater in like the fifth century BCE, female sex workers were the first ever actors to perform Greek new comedy. Is that not mind blowing? I really tried to find some names of these women, but of course, only the male playwrights were documented, so sorry ladies, I would have given you a shout out. Let's talk a little about the most iconic theatrical writer, Shakespeare. I mean, he had royalty as audience members. Surely his performers were respected, but no. The Globe Theatre was in one of the dodgiest neighborhoods of London, filled with brothels. Actors and sex workers literally working alongside each other, which furthered this association between the two. Acting was seen as unruly and a threat to a peaceful society. Hmm, now doesn't that sound familiar? So what changed for acting during that time to now as it being a very reputable profession? I mean, actors these days are seen as some of the most prestigious members of society, probably along the same level of repute as elite business people or politicians. I'm thinking of actors like Meryl Streep and Helen Mirren, Cher and Lady Gaga. I, I could go on. So I wonder, is there a place for that to happen for sex work? Especially during this age of information and the internet where sex work is at its most easily accessible. From the research I've done about this, it was actually not until the turn of the 20th century that acting diverged from the association of sex work. This so happened to be the time of cinema in Europe and America and the explosion of the middle class. During this time, there was a turn in the economy since it now relied more on manufacturing and trade rather than the cultivation of land. There was more new money status. Basically, that means people were able to find more ways of individual agency. This is something interesting that I noticed. I'm sure you've heard of the term tall poppy syndrome, but if you haven't, Google defines it as a perceived tendency to discredit or disparage those who have achieved notable wealth or prominence in public life. That's pretty much what was happening to actors pre-20th century. They were able to build careers and find individual agency outside of the norm, and that pissed people off. They were shunned for this expression of self and diversion from the status quo. So not until everyone was able to express individual agency and when mass media exploded, did the profession of acting become reputable. You can see it happening now, in fact. People of sex work are progressively earning more and more respect in society since the birth of the internet. The internet has given sex workers the individual agency and control, much like cinema did for acting. I'm thinking of people like Anna Paul. She is an OnlyFans model with a heart of gold. How do I know that? 
because I subscribe to her OF profile and follow her on TikTok and all her Instagram accounts where she documents her life and her day-to-day happenings, traveling the world with her boyfriend and her gorgeous supportive family. Remember when I said some actors are at the same level of social respect as politicians these days? Well, the Australian election just happened and I was seeing TikToks on my For You page of people trolling the polling stations, writing Anna Paul as their number one vote for PM. To my generation of Gen Zs, Anna Paul is more reputable than most politicians. I want to turn now to our modern world and its obsession with sex. We all know the term sex sells. In every corner of Western culture, we are exposed to the marketing of products by cheap tactics of gaining our attention from sexually attractive people. Brands spend millions of dollars marketing with models and influencers. Just thinking back through all of the 2000s and 2010s when the annual Victoria's Secret show would air and people would take time out of their work to watch the show. I literally remember seeing on Snapchat stories a lifeguard posting about the show in the middle of his shift when he's meant to be on the lookout to save someone. They were selling lingerie with their perfectly toned bodies and sculptured faces. I wonder how that's not considered sex work. Is it because there was no physical touching between two parties followed by the monetary transaction? Okay, then I guess stripping and dominatrixing isn't considered sex work with that argument. Even though there is monetary transaction, a sub and a dom in traditional practice never touch. In strip clubs, clients aren't allowed to lay hands on the dancers. What about actors who pose nude in film and TV during sex scenes? Where is the line drawn between it all, and why is there stigma for some, but not for others? What about sex columnists who divulge their entire sex life on paper in exchange for compensation? What about podcasters and hosts who do the same? I'm thinking Alex Cooper from Call Her Daddy. She gives details on her sex life and advice on dating and relationships with her listeners and makes a shitload of money doing so. Is that considered sex work? Just something to think about. Now, of course, there is a dark side to sex work. I know a number of people who find themselves in this profession due to past traumas and feeling stuck in a vicious cycle and forget their self-worth. This side of sex work is scary, but I think stems from the stigma behind it. I know a number of people who do sex work on OnlyFans, but they keep it secret for fear of it affecting their other public career and outside judgment that is associated with it. Even though they were finding so much success and also making people really fucking happy with their photos. With such a rich history of sex work, I'm not sure these stigmas and judgments are warranted. If it's not for you, you don't have to participate. But that doesn't mean there is any place for you to have an opinion about something you don't understand. It's the classic suggestion, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. When it comes to sex work, I believe it's only right if it's between two consenting adults and the person receiving compensation for their actions has total control and has absolute autonomy of their decisions. Of course, an issue that I have is the obvious objectification that can come with the sale of sex, which is why there needs to be a wider discussion and progress in removing the stigma associated with it. I've always been a big believer in embracing the chaos. If something is too difficult to control, why not embrace it and then create reform from there? I mean, a good example of this is the legalization of all drugs. <laughs> I mean, guys, come on, the war on drugs, it just doesn't work. There are people locked away all over the world for selling weed when it wasn't legal and who are still locked up even after the legalization of drugs in the same country. 
the legalization of drugs would allow safer accessibility to substances, causing fewer deaths from poisoning or overdosing and totally annihilating the drug trade and removing the power from these big drug lords who are ultimately the bad guys in all of this. It doesn't make sense to me for it not to be legal. It's the same for sex work. The stigma and danger of the industry would be totally removed if there was a wider discussion for it. With all the evidence in front of us, it's pretty clear that people in charge don't want the best for us. Prisoners are free labor. Governments make money from them. And don't even get me started on how much money they make in war. I'm talking billions and billions of dollars. Why would they end the war on drugs for the benefit of their citizens when they're making so much goddamn cash fighting with our neighbors? We humans could have been making love and art and eating fruit and swimming in lagoons for eternity. Instead, we have to work and pay taxes, which goes to wars, which causes pollution, which kills our planet and dries up our lagoons and rots our fruit and creates judgment around how people make and spend their money. I honestly think the judgment behind sex work stems from men who are pissed that women are making the most out of a system designed to disadvantage them. They make up this whole concept of money, and then when women are like, oh, okay, money makes the world go around, fine then. I'm confident in my body and my sexuality, and you can only touch me if you support me for the rest of my life. So now they have to do backbreaking work forever in order to get laid. So men in turn developed this judgment to control women. Just imagine if the roles were reversed. In this new reality, women are more sex obsessed than men and willing to give up whatever they have for it. I know that it's a bit of a generalization me saying that because obviously women think about sex just as much as men. I mean, it's biological, but the difference is women don't do crazy shit to get laid. Back to painting this new reality. Men no longer think just for the moment and are able to see the big picture. Wow, groundbreaking. If men could charge women for sex, they would. But they can't because women don't need men for total pleasure. I mean, yeah. It can be nice, but it's not necessary when my dildo and my clit sucker are on charge right next to me. I know this sounds messed up, but I don't remember the last time I had sex with a man and I wasn't performing. So, if I'm gonna be performing, I wanna get motherfucking paid. Selling sex is a product of capitalism. It's not a moral failing, but the result of market forces that primarily disadvantage women. We are all selling something. But throughout history, Sex work has been punished, shunned, and marginalized because it sold sex, rather than labor in factories or farms. I'm excited to see the trajectory of sex work in society and its inevitable total acceptance. I'm gonna leave it there for today, guys. You can find all the material I referenced in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening to episode two of Nymphos Shame Pit. I'll see you in the next one.